This is WMNM Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the death blow to American democracy dealt by Senator Joe Manchin, who announced in an op-ed that he will not vote for SB1, the For the People Act, because he does not consider it sufficiently bipartisan. Joining us to discuss the future of voting rights and paralysis in the Senate is Ira Shapiro, who spent 12 years on the senior staff in the United States Senate and as counsel to Majority Leader Robert Byrd, the mentor of West Virginia Senator Manchin. The author of Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself and the Country? He joins us to discuss his article at the New York Times, How Joe Manchin Could Make the Senate Great Again. We will assess what can be done to overcome the politics of sabotage and the deliberate obstruction by Mitch McConnell, who vowed to destroy Obama's presidency and has promised to do the same with Biden's, and whether a deal can be made with a few moderate Republican senators to pass a bipartisan version of SB1. Then we'll speak with Tom Hartman, the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, and New York Times bestselling author whose latest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. He joins us to discuss the fight to save American democracy and his article at BuzzFlash, Democrats Need to Start Dealing with Republicans as They Would Deal with the Klan. Then finally, we'll examine the horrendous discoveries made in Canada of mass graves at so-called schools for First Nations children run by the Catholic Church at which cultural genocide and cruelty took place, prompting Prime Minister Trudeau to call on the Catholic Church to stop resisting the release of documents and to take responsibility. Link Kessler, Associate Professor at the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and the former director of the University of British Columbia's First Nations House of Learning, where he was also the university's president of Aboriginal Affairs, joins us to discuss what Native Americans have always known that white Americans and Canadians are now just learning about. And joining us now is Ira Shapiro, who's an international lawyer in Washington, D.C., who spent 12 years in the United States Senate as counsel to Majority Leader Robert Byrd and other senior positions where he played an important role in implementing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the Senate Code of Ethics, and he's the author of The Last Great Senate, Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis, and Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself and the Country? And he has an article at the New York Times, How Joe Manchin Could Make the Senate great again. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ira Shapiro. Ian, it's wonderful to be back. You've been the voice of Los Angeles Public Radio for so long that I always love talking with you. Well, thank you, Ira. I appreciate that. And um, Joe Manchin just appears to have dealt a death blow to American democracy and announcing in an op-ed that he will not vote for SB1, the For the People Act, because he doesn't consider it sufficiently bipartisan. Is this the end of SB1? I think it's too early to reach that conclusion, Ian. And frankly, the point of my article was that a majority, a Senate that works by majority empowers the real legislators 
the constructive players, the people who want to work, Democratic and Republic, Democrats and Republicans, who want to work for solutions to our nation's problems. Um, so I think that the article and the argument were relevant to Democrats and Republicans, like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney. Um, there's a lot of work that remains to be done on the voting legislation, and let's see how it goes. I don't think we're at the end of this game yet. Well, Robert Byrd, who you worked with for many years, as he was a Senate Majority Leader, and his protege in many ways is the senator from West Virginia, his replacement, Joe Manchin. So he became Senate Majority Leader in 1977, Byrd, and he was, I guess, the longest-serving senator and the foremost parliamentarian and historian. So that's a tough act to follow for Joe Manchin, surely. <laughs> well, Ian, let me, let me just correct the record in the sense that I worked for Senator Byrd briefly uh, as part of my 12 years in the Senate. But circled back when I wrote my two books, I spent a lot of time studying Senator Byrd. I've written about him extensively uh, in recent, in the last decade, actually. Um, and I think that Senator Byrd is, is the right person to think about when one thinks about how the Senate ought to work. Uh, Joe Manchin often says that Byrd believed in the filibuster and told him that the filibuster was basically shouldn't be ever changed. Uh, but my reading of Byrd's record is different. Uh, in, as I point out in the article, the nightmare for Byrd was the paralyzed Senate. It couldn't do the nation's business. When Byrd con confronted a new form of obstruction, which he did in 1977-78, he moved against it immediately because he simply didn't believe that the Senate should be paralyzed and stopped from doing the nation's work. And I think that's relevant to today's situation, and that's why I wrote the article. And, of course, recently the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, said that 100% of my focus is on stopping the Biden administration. So... And, he, of course, he made a similar statement on the very day that Obama was inaugurated. So he's pretty clear about what his role is. Obstruction, obstruction, obstruction. Yeah. I mean, look, I, you and I have talked about this in past years. From my standpoint, the Senate had a long period of gradual decline, say, from 1990 on until... McConnell came to be the opposition leader. And then it turned into a downward spiral. McConnell was a different kind of leader. He didn't work with the other, the, the other party. He didn't really work with the president. His, he turned the Senate into a partisan obstructionist instrument for eight years of Obama. 
And he would run the same playbook against Joe Biden, even though he says that, you know, we have a long relationship. I like Joe Biden. It doesn't matter. So the question for the for the Democrats and the question for a handful of the more moderate Republicans is, are you going to stop the Senate from working or are you going to help it carry on its business? And from my standpoint, it's the time to dramatically reform the filibuster or abolish it outright. Well, it makes no sense, as you point out in your article, Ira, that the $2.1 trillion tax cut in 2017, which is basically Trump's only legacy, and the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, they were done on a majority vote or were attempted to be done on a majority vote in, in terms of the latter. We, we all remember John McCain's thumbs down. But yet that it requires 60 votes to help the dreamers get background checks for guns, combat climate change, or protect the right to vote. So the priorities are completely skewed. I think that's right. I mean, what, what you're referring to, uh, Ian, is... The fact that the reconciliation process, budget reconciliation, can be used and distorted in such a way that you can pass certain things with 50 votes. That's okay. Big tax cut. Maybe even repeal the Affordable Care Act if the Republicans had their way. You can do that with 50 votes. But other things, the things that you care about, and most dramatically now, voting rights. The Republicans would take the position, McConnell will take the position, that S-1, uh, the Voting Rights Bill, John Lewis Act, uh, has to have 60 votes. This is an existential issue, and as far as I'm concerned, it should be determined by the President of the United States, the House of Representatives, and a majority, not a supermajority, of the Senate. And the other thing that I try to point out in the article, which I think is, is important, uh, a 50-vote Senate can debate plenty of things. It can negotiate. It will not be easy to rate, reach results. But it will be a Senate in which the deal-makers, the bipartisans on deal-makers on both sides, have the decisive vote. They won't be handing the keys to the castle to Mitch McConnell and the obstructionists. Well, the part that I, I find so horrible about American politics is that there is a pattern here where the, where the Republicans essentially, their job is to make sure that a Democratic president is completely unsuccessful and that nothing gets passed so that by the time that person comes up for re-election the public are fed up with a do-nothing presidency and so what we have is government by sabotage it, in your day when you said the the golden era of the senate was when you were there from the 1960s through the 1980s where it was a whole different story. I mean, people were working with each other, cooperating. They were trying to make America better, not sabotage any progress to the point where you have paralysis. And 
then, you know, you get this backlash and then you get back into power. And that's obviously the strategy going on now with McConnell. Biden's programs are very popular, particularly, for example, you know, the unemployment benefits. But now what's happening? All these Republican governors are cutting them off because they don't want people to like what Biden's doing. It's also naked. It's just, it's really sad. Well, I look, I think you've described it very accurately. And the Republicans don't really accept the results of elections they lose. And McConnell's goal, as he said with Obama, and as he's saying again, is to obstruct and make the Democratic president a failure, irrespective of the effects on the country. Now, the Republicans, some of the Republicans would say, well, the Democrats didn't exactly cooperate with Trump. And there's some truth to that, certainly. In my view of things, Democratic Congress senators always cooperated and tried to work with, where they could, Republican presidents uh, in the past. I do believe Trump was different. I do believe that he did not make an effort to reach out to the Democrats or or to anyone who didn't support him initially. And the Democratic resistance to him was strong. I agree with that. It's sort of a, it was a different deal. But here we have Joe Biden, who is a very, not only very experienced, not only a former senator and vice president, but an authentic, good faith political player. Everyone knows that. The Republicans know that. Joe Biden would work for bipartisan accomplishments if the Republicans would cooperate. But I think he's learned enough to believe that he he will not stand by for obstruction and let it derail his agenda. But beyond what we're talking about, Ira, now we're entering into an unprecedented period uh, where American democracy itself is now under threat. And we've never had that before, I guess, except for the Civil War, where you have a situation where the Republican Party has decided rather than compete, they will cheat. And that they're going to put this guy back in power because he led the coup, this failed coup. It got very close to being successful. And I cannot for the life of me understand why they stick with this man, but they are. And he's become literally, as a former president, he's not out painting pictures of little dogs or building houses, but he is controlling the GOP. So we are in a very different environment we've never been in before so can you make the survival of american democracy as the central issue here because that's what it is no i think that is what it is i think that those of us who would have hoped that the election of joe biden and by the way the january 6th insurrection at the capitol we would have hoped that those develop those events would have broken the fever in the country, but that hasn't been the case, right? I mean, they just the Republicans have just rallied behind the same madness represented by the former president, and I do believe, and of course, it's frightening to see 
the Republican efforts at the state level uh, in Florida, Georgia, Texas, to revamp voting rights. Their central core principles seem to be obstruction on the one hand and voter suppression on the other hand. So, So, with all that, I think we are in a fight for the future of our democracy. And I don't want to hold back the chances of success with a 60-vote supermajority Senate. We shouldn't have that additional burden to carry. Well, Ira Shapiro, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, I very much appreciate being with you, and I hope we'll do it again. We will indeed, and I thank you again, Ira Shapiro, an international lawyer in Washington, D.C., who spent 12 years in the United States Senate as counsel to the majority leader and other senior positions where he played an important role in implementing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and the Senate Code of Ethics. And he's the author of The Last Great Senate, Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis and Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself and the Country? And he has an article at the New York Times how Joe Manchin could make the Senate great again. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with Tom Hartman about his article at BuzzFlash, Democrats need to start dealing with Republicans as they would deal with the Klan. Handful of senators don't pass legislation And marches alone can't bring integration When human respect is disintegrating This whole crazy world is just too frustrating And you tell me over and over and over again, my friend I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Hartman, who's the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, The Tom Hartman Program, heard on KPFK Monday through Fridays at 9 a.m. Talkers Magazine named him America's number one most important progressive host and the host of one of the top ten talk radio shows in the country every year for over a decade. A four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award, Hartman is also a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books translated into multiple languages, including The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, and his latest book is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. And he has an article at BuzzFlash, Democrats Need to Stop Dealing with Republicans as They Would Deal with the Klan. Welcome to Background Briefing. Tom Hartman. Thank you, Ian. Great being here with you. Well, thanks a lot, Tom. And and recently, in fact, last week, President Biden, at the 100th anniversary of the massacre in Tulsa, made some very powerful remarks. I thought it was an extraordinary speech that he made where he talked about the need to confront history and that hate lies in dark places and it has to be exposed. And he talked at length about the Klan 
and uh, you wrote about it in a way that's very similar to what the President said, that when the Republicans took the House in 1921 and held it for 12 years, their rise to power was paralleled by the rise in the visibility and influence of the Klan, and by 1926, 150,000 cheering white people lined Pennsylvania Avenue to watch 30,000 Klan members dressed in full white hooded Klan regalia, which again, President Biden remarked. So how do you get the Republicans to recognize how racist they've become without calling them racists? And of course, they bristle at that very idea. But in fact, the evidence is pretty clear that when they talk about voter fraud, that's a dog whistle. That's code for the fact that they don't want black and brown people to vote. And young and old people. But um, really, it's the, on the racist, the racist part of this is the black and brown people, absolutely. And, and, uh, but they are throwing in barriers to young people and to people over 65 as well. Um, but the, the, yeah, the main one is race. And, and I have no problem calling them racist because they know that they're, they're racially motivated. These are, I mean, the, the New York Times published this piece, this analysis of where the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th came from, and the majority of them came from counties that are experiencing the highest rate in the United States of um, uh, people of color increasing in population, white populations decreasing. And so it's it's like white anxiety is the phrase that they use. I, I, I would just say white racism i mean it's like you know anxiety is such a polite term but um racism has been the animated animating force in the republican party since 1968 i mean you know uh dwight eisenhower was the the you know the 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 previous republican president richard dinkson was his vice president from 52 to 1960 and and uh, during that time, you had that Brown versus Board of Education decision in 54. And uh, at that point in time, most of the, the Southern backlash and, you know, shutting down the Prince George's County school systems in Maryland and a lot of the schools in Virginia in response and, you know, the whole massive resistance movement, a lot of that was associated with the Democratic Party at that time. And uh, that all changed in the mid-60s with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And so in 68, Nixon stepped into that space that the Democrats had left behind of, in the white racist vote and said, we actively want the white racist vote. And uh, that was the Southern, Nixon's Southern strategy. And then Reagan, of course, you know, he was, after, after he was nominated at the Republican convention in 1980, the first public speech he gave was in the Nebosha County uh, fair uh, down in Mississippi, just just uh, a few miles from where uh, Cheney, Schwarmer, and uh, Goodman were murdered, the three civil rights workers that they made the movie Mississippi Burning out of. And, uh, and in fact, John, Don Jr. gave his first political speech on behalf of his father at the same county fair to the same, you know, to elect right. to another group of you know twenty thousand white people and and uh, another states' rights speech, just like Reagan gave. I mean, racism is the principal brand of the Republican Party. Everybody thinks in terms of oh, the Republicans are about tax cuts and and deregulation. In other words, let's help the billionaires and the big corporations. And of course, that's what they do. That's where they get their money from. But what they're really running on is racism. That the 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 the, the basis of their appeal is is this the lost cause of the old Confederacy, and we just need to call it out. Just say it. It's this is the truth. 
It's an empirical statement of fact. Right. Well, if you follow the history of the anti-lynching bill, the the dire anti-lynching bill was first introduced when the House was taken over by Republicans in 1921. It was filibustered by the Democrats, by the Southern, the Dixiecrats. And then, then of course, as you mentioned, in 68, there was a switch where the Dixiecrats then became Republicans. And as you point out in your article, Steve Scalise, the number two guy in the House Republicans today, when he ran for Congress, his campaign was, I'm David Duke without the baggage. And now you have the same anti-lynching bill that has not been passed since 1920 is now before the Senate and it's being filibustered by a Republican, Rand Paul. So to my mind, that's the most graphic thing of all. If you're in favor of lynching, you're a racist. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable statement, Yeah, <laughs> That's as clear as it gets. So again... Given that Biden made the speech, you know, you can't weaponize the president's words unless he weaponizes them. And I think Biden has a dilemma. On the one hand, he wants to get his agenda passed to make the lives of Americans better so that the Democrats will retain the House and Senate or, in fact, increase their majority and his presidency will be successful. But really, if you don't deal with the filibuster, nothing's going to happen. And the Republicans already have an advantage in an off-year election. That's a given. They've already gerrymandered to the point where they'll win the House without one vote being cast. And the, in the census gave Texas two more seats and I think one in Florida as well. So how is Biden going to weaponize these remarks he made in Tulsa? Or who's going to do it? Because this is a battle for American democracy. And I just don't think... The average American knows what a filibuster is. So I don't know that you can run on saving democracy. And I don't know that you can run on saying the Republicans become a racist party. So what would your advice to the Democrats be, Tom? Well, um, there's a couple of predicating assumptions that I think we should lay down. Um, The first is that the biggest Uh, problem that Joe Biden has is not with the Republicans, it's with Democrats in his own caucus, particularly in the Senate. And he's dealing with the legacy of um, uh, basically of Clintonism, of Bill Clinton, uh, you know, and the the DLC. Um, Just a a little quick history here. Um, After the Nixon bribery scandals and it came to light in 74 and Nixon was out, and Jerry Ford became president, we actually passed some really good, good government legislation to get money out of politics. That got, all got blown up in 76 and 78 by two Supreme Court decisions, Buckley versus Vallejo and, and First National Bank versus Bellotti in 76 and 78, that said that if a billionaire or a corporation wants to completely own a politician or even a political party so completely that that politician only does things that benefit that benefactor, and that benefactor is the the largest source of support for that politician, which used to be called bribery. That used to be the criteria to define or identify bribery. The Supreme Court ruled that that's no longer considered bribery. That is now considered free speech. Money is, is speech, and the more money you give a politician, the freer your speech is. So um, what happened after that in, in, in the election in 1980 was all this money now was available to politicians. 
and the Democratic Party didn't much need it because they were a washing cash from the unions, and the unions were a washing cash so much so that Jimmy Hoffa could you know steal millions off the top. But the Republicans needed some cash, and so you know they put their hands out, and Reagan just floated into office on this ocean of uh, corporate and billionaire money. And so by the ninety, and then and then Reagan took a meat axe to the to the unions as a way of defunding the Democratic Party. I mean, this was like, okay, first we're going to take all this money from these groups, and then we're going to cut the knees out from under the Democratic Party. So you know, when Reagan came into office, a third of America was a union was unionized. Um, by the time uh, the end of the twelve years of the Reagan Bush administration, we were down to about eight um, percent. So he just gutted the unions and thus gutted the ability of the Democratic Party to raise money. So Bill Clinton and Al Fromm developed this deal, revived the Democratic Leadership Council and turned it into a corporate money-making machine, fundraising machine. And that's how Bill Clinton got elected and, and, you know, and and that continued. I mean, that was, you know, and uh, Obama was essentially a DLC Democrat as well. And you've got uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, a half of Democrats in the House are in that category. And probably the majority of the Democrats in the Senate, and uh, and and at least eight or ten of them are very deeply in those pockets. So, um, blowing of the filibuster would give the Democratic Party the ability to do things that would take on these large funders, the fossil fuel industry, the banking industry, the insurance industry, in ways that they're very worried about. I think Mansion and Cinema are just the leading edge of probably at least seven or eight. Democrats who uh, will not vote to end the filibuster. So Biden finds himself in this horrible position um, of not being able to get anything done. And if he can't get anything done, then, you know, the next election, they'll go for the other party thinking, hey, maybe they can get something done. We've seen this, you know, back and forth forever. And uh, it's a real tough one. So I don't think that running on race is going to help him. Uh, People who are concerned about the race issue in the United States and and about the implications and consequences of white racism are already well conscious of that. You don't need to run a campaign to wake them up to it. It's visible to everybody. Um, and and in fact, you run the risk that in some parts of the country where there are a lot of white people who are still voting Democratic, that, you know, there's still deeply embedded racism, even if it's, you know, not their main issue in that population and and you risk alienating them so i uh, you know not that he shouldn't be saying what he's saying i mean he is and Mm -hmm. god bless him you know we need to just speak the truth but as the as the main thrust of your election race is already i i think that's kind of already baked into the equation um so so the strategy is going to be he's going to be running on or it appears that the strategy is going to be he's going to be running on uh or trying to get things passed uh, you know, the, his, the political capital that he's going to be pointing to and using is, I got things done. I got you these $300 a month checks. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, over 20 Republican-controlled states have now cut off those $300 a month checks. They don't want people thinking well of Joe Biden. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's, and, and it's why they're trying to kneecap the economy. Uh, the Republicans are doing everything they can to try to hurt the economy because they know if the economy is good, if the economy is really good in, in November of 2022, the Democrats have a much better chance of uh, seizing uh, majority control of the Senate and holding on to the House 
And if the economy sucks in 2022, in November 2022, there's a very good chance the Republicans will take both. And that's the main thing. I mean, remember the old, it's the economy stupid slogan in the Clinton headquarters in 92. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. Right. And so, so this is now a struggle. And, the, and, the, and at some point, Biden is going to have to confront the Democrats who are, who are basically shilling for various industries. Um, and, and, you know, mostly, like I said, banking, insurance, and fossil fuels. And, uh, and say, okay, you know, uh, maybe we won't go after your industries, but you've got to help me get rid of the filibusters so that I can get something done. It's also a two-edged sword, you know, getting rid of the filibuster. Um, because if you get a Republican president, I mean, the Democrats use the filibuster to stop a lot of really evil stuff that the Republicans are trying to push through during the Trump administration. So what I've been suggesting is that we go to a, the Jimmy Stewart filibuster, you know, the way that it plays out in the movies, um, which is not how it's ever actually played out, but let's do that, where you've got to have 40 members on the floor continuously, and you've got to have somebody talking continuously. And the minute one of either one of those two things is breached, then you have a vote. And uh, that's the end of the filibuster. And what that would do for, to both Democrats and Republicans is in the Senate is force them to stand up for long periods of time and justify their position. And I think that because most of the things that the Democrats are pushing are extraordinarily popular among the American people, and most of the things the Republicans are pushing are indefensible, I think a talking filibuster would work wildly to the advantage of the Democratic caucus. So that's probably, the. I'm guessing that's the compromise. If he can get anything done, it's going to be some kind of a compromise like that. But, Tom, the one thing that Democrats and Republican lawmakers have in common is that they spend their days dialing for dollars. They've essentially become right. telemarketers. I don't know that even the most right-wing Republican particularly likes the humiliating need to ask for money all day long. And ironically, in the last cycle, it was the Democrats who benefited more from dark money than the Republicans who have traditionally benefited from dark money, which means that the billionaire doesn't have to be attributed the donor. So, In terms of money to campaigns, that's true. In terms right. of third-party groups campaigning right. on behalf of candidates, which very often are the things that turn the elections, right. um, that money going, going to Republicans over Democrats is substantial. I mean, almost an order of magnitude greater. But isn't the For the People Act, HR1, SB1, isn't going to get get rid of a lot of this money in politics. Yes. And so yes. that would be the prerequisite to any kind of reform in this country. Well, shouldn't that be priority number one? It should be. And and that's why, you know, both the four years ago, two years ago, and this year, it was the first piece of legislation. I'm pretty sure four years ago. I know right. two years ago. It was the first piece of legislation introduced into the House because it's, it was the top priority is, you know, let's, we can't do anything if we don't have a functioning democracy. And, uh, you know, and, function, and democracy by definition is the majority rules. Democrats but surely, but surely uh, both Manchin and Cinema, like ever, all the rest of them would benefit equally. And I don't understand why, I mean, I don't see Manchin or Cinema getting to the point where they get so, you know, feeling under pressure that they walk across the aisle and make Mitch McConnell a majority leader because they're not going to get re-elected as Republicans in either West Virginia or Arizona. 
Oh, so, I think Manchin would definitely get re- reelected as a Republican in West Virginia. You think so? Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, Trump carried West Virginia by 30 points. Jim right. Justice, the, uh, oh, the governor. Oh, he switched, didn't he? Yeah. That's right. He went from Democrat to Republican right after he got elected. So, right. Yeah. So, I guess just the Cinema's last a whole of- other thing. Right, but I, know, in, I think cinema is just. I think she's Roseanne Barr. I think she's just you know who's who ran for president on the Green Party ticket and then became a big Trump booster. Um, she just was doing whatever would get her in the newspapers. Um, right. You know, pathological need for attention. I think that's Kirsten Cinema. Well, Tom Hartman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, it's good talking to you, and this is this is a tough time for all of us. You know, it's uh, for for this country, and and I, I'm I'm so glad you're out there talking every day on. On KPFK and, and keeping the flame burning. Thank you. Well, same to you, Tom. And I, again, I've been speaking with Tom Hartman, who's the host of the nationally and internationally syndicated talk show, the Tom Hartman Program, heard on KPFK Monday through Fridays at 9 a.m. Talkers Magazine named him America's number one most important progressive host and the host of one of the top ten radio talk shows in the country every year for over a decade, a four-time recipient of the Project Censored Award. Hartman is also a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books translated into multiple languages, including The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, and his latest is The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, and he has an article at BuzzFlash, Democrats Need to Start Dealing with Republicans as They Would Deal with the Klan. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the horrendous discoveries made in Canada of mass graves at so-called schools for First Nations children run by the Catholic Church. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Link Kessler, who is an associate professor at the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies and the former director of the University of British Columbia's First Nations House of Learning, where he was also a senior advisor to the university's president on Aboriginal affairs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Link Kessler. Thank you very much. So, Link, not far from your university in Kamloops and north of you in British Columbia, there has been this uh, hideous discovery made uh, recently Yes, of the remains of 215 children at this uh, school, if that's the right way to describe it. And it's led now, of course, to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, himself a Catholic, is urging now the Catholic Church to take responsibility for its role in these indigenous residential schools, saying that so far the church had not released records and Trudeau and the government have been met with resistance. 
he said, Trudeau, as a Catholic, I am deeply disappointed by the position that the Catholic Church has now taken over the past many years. And he described visiting the Vatican in 2017 and asking the Pope Francis for a formal apology. So this is turning into quite a contest, I guess, between the Canadian Prime Minister and the Pope. How does it strike you? Well, it, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to see uh, Justin Trudeau taking that action. Um, it's, I think the Canadian uh, government, this Canadian government, has really been doing uh, more than its predecessors to uh, try to address this history more directly and to begin to take actions to put us into a different frame uh, of reference. It's it's a slow process and, and many people are not entirely happy with the rate at which things are changing, but still in comparison to its predecessor, it's uh, moving more rapidly. And I'm very glad to hear him make this particular call. Canada had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, a few years ago that operated for a number of years and did very extensive interviewing with former students of the residential school system. And it documented a a huge range of uh, really critical situations, certainly quite and uncovered quite a bit of abuse, uh, routine abuse in discipline, uh, routine abuse and undernourishment of students, uh, a lot of um, accounts of sexual and physical abuse. Uh, just really very difficult stories to hear. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission published a very extensive record of its findings. And in that record, it identified um, the, where, um, to the extent that the records it found would permit it to give specific numbers, uh, large numbers of deaths in the schools, and at times uh, mortality rates in excess of 60% in some schools. Um, And I think one of the things that's really important to know about this is that students were taken by force from their families and often kept in the schools for their entire childhood and and not allowed to return to their families at all. In fact, that was the intention of the schools. And uh, when children did die, it was very common for uh, the death not to be reported to the family. So family members simply had no idea what had become of their children, which is really a exceptional uh, kind of cruelty in excess of what was happening to the students in the schools. Uh, so I think for many people this uh, in indigenous communities, this discovery is just confirming what they have long understood. And it's, uh, I've spoken with many um, survivors in the last week and of course, they're uh, they're finding it a really difficult uh, time. I think we all are, uh, because it brings back so many memories of what has happened to uh, to them and to our relatives. So um, that's difficult. Uh, it is, however, an opportunity to talk with people, uh, yourself and your listeners and many other people in Canada who, in spite of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission's operation and the considerable coverage of that in the media, are still not knowledgeable about this history. And it is only now beginning to really enter Canadian school curriculums that the schools operated, let alone what happened in them. And uh, it's really important for people to understand it because it uh, structures so much of... um, 
what the lives of people in indigenous communities and the prospects for communications between indigenous people and other Canadians. If, if we all understand the history and understand it completely and realistically, then the potential for us to be able to communicate to each other in a reasonable and effective way is, is much greater than it is right now, where I think Indigenous people in many conversations are just beside themselves because they feel that the people they're talking to have no idea who they are and, and what's happened to them. And there are, what, 1.7 million Indigenous people in Canada? Yeah, I'm actually... Um, I'll tell you from the outset that I, I am not your guy for statistics and numbers, but it's okay. about 4% of the Canadian population, yeah. and about over 50% of which live in urban areas now. And the Truth and, Truth and, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that you mentioned, its report came out in 2015. That's correct. Uh, and it documented the deaths of 4,100 children in these yeah. schools. And I believe the government paid out, what, a couple of, uh, how much money, a couple of billion do dollars? Well, it was a ex fairly extensive set of settlements, and they were in two forms. One of them was in what was termed a common experience uh, settlement, and the other was specific settlements to individuals who, after a process of giving testimony, were judged by a panel to have suffered significant uh, abuse. So... Uh, I should note, though, that there were many former students of the schools who did not go to Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings and did not make claims, and that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself was not the result of a government action, but was the part of the settlement of, of the largest class action lawsuit in Canadian history uh, brought by former students. And uh, that court case was the culmination of a series of events that began with individual court cases uh, in the 1990s and the early part of this century um, that began to break the silences surrounding uh, these experiences. And people began to come forward and realize that there was, in fact, something they could do. Because I think the common experience of uh, people who had been students in those schools was for various reasons not to talk about it. Uh, not to talk about it because it was difficult to talk about, to remember it and to relive it and to think about what happened to them. Not to talk about it because if, if talking about it meant revealing things like being sexually abused, um, that they often encountered a very, encountered very negative reaction from people around them, including people in their communities and were, were viewed as less than other people because they had had those experiences. And also because those students, the whole point of the schools was to deculturize students from their home communities. So they returned to communities unable to speak the language in the community, unable to talk to the elders, not knowing um, the codes of behavior that were common in the communities, um, and really just not having uh, any kind of a basis for a functional life there. So often they didn't stay in the communities very long, and they ended up in urban areas and often uh, with untreated trauma, um, succumbing to alcohol and, and drug issues, at least for a number of years. Uh, many of the people who had that experience and, and went, uh, went through that later uh, difficulties 
eventually managed to find ways to put their lives back together. And some of them became leaders in the, the movement to um, bring these circumstances to light. And so it's, you know, really courageous action by those people that uh, we are even talking about this today. Because the government, uh, you know, through the end of the 20th century was the policy was to uh, not to not only not to talk about it, but to actively suppress uh, information, not just about the residential schools, but the visibility of indigenous people more generally. Through the first half of the 20th century, it was illegal in Canada for indigenous people to wear any ceremonial clothing, to gather in a group of three or more for any purpose. Um, to practice any form of indigenous culture. And in those schools, uh, it was punishable by, uh, typically by beatings uh, for speaking an indigenous language. And uh, that happened, by the way, I should make sure that your um, listeners understand that that also happened in the United States. And my mother attended the Haskell Indian School in uh, Lawrence, Kansas in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, she refused to talk about it ever uh, until she was uh, in her 90s and in an advanced stage of um, Alzheimer's. And she was able to say a few things about it, but she didn't go into any detail about what had happened. She just said it had been very, very bad. So I think that's very typical of uh, what happened to many people. And they really felt isolated in their uh in the, being left to deal with their experiences on their own. So being able to talk about it for survivors is a step forward in uh, being able to have a more reasonable basis for their lives and their families because they returned home and had families with no experience of family life, no sense of what parenting skills were, and all of these, um, uh, all of this trauma to contend with. And frequently, their children had a very difficult time um, in contending with them and often had no idea why their parents behaved the way that they did. So I know it was, as I began to understand this history, it, uh, it was very helpful for me. And I think that's been true for other people as well. So I'm, I'm happy to see it, even though it's difficult and it's a very sad history. I'm glad that it is now more available pe to people to understand for a whole range of reasons. And between 1867 and 1996, uh, these schools operated uh, yes. largely by the Catholic Church, but the Canadian state, uh, other in a churches sense, as well, the Canadian yeah. Church subcontracted to the churches to right. run schools. But in a sense, the Canadian state abducted more than 150,000 indigenous children. And we don't know, I mentioned the 4,100 number from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission oh, yeah. report in 2015, but the number is well, large, probably likely to be larger, right? Yeah, well, I, you know, spoken many times with the people who are putting the uh, commission report together, uh, their colleagues, and uh, I think they were very careful to uh, in in their identification of statistics to cite numbers that they could uh, document from existing records because they did not want to be accused of exaggerating or speculating. Um, but everyone understood that, of course, the number was going, it was considerably higher than that because so many things had not been documented or records had been destroyed or, uh, you know, they were in the 
somewhere at the Vatican now because uh, the Catholic Church did not want them opened. So we we know that the number is larger than that. And the same is true in the United States. Um, in about six years ago, uh, a researcher named Marcia Small used ground-penetrating radar uh, to examine the grounds of the Chamawa Indian School in uh, outside of Salem, Oregon, where near where I used to work, actually. And she found uh, a large number of unmarked graves as well. And I should note that in uh, 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act in the United States, um, many of these uh, government-run schools in the United States um, did go through a set of reforms. Uh, the Haskell School, where my mother had gone, uh, had received a new superintendent, um, Henry Rowcloud, who was a Ho-Chunk uh, tribal member and a graduate of Yale University. And he instituted a set of reforms. And I was uh, able to talk with members of his family a few years ago. And his granddaughter said that she remembered very well that he told her that one of his first acts as superintendent was to close the prison wing. Which sort of gives you an idea of what the flavor of the school might have been uh, when he got there. But, uh, you know, even though Tramawa, I think, became uh, a place that was a reasonably good place to go to uh, after World War II, at least. I had spoken with people who had uh, graduated from Tramawa during that period. Uh, it, the history of those, uh, the same kind of uh, deaths is, is there as well. Um, the other thing I think is really important to know is that uh, at times in the in U.S. history in the first part of the 20th century, um, this, these schools were not attended voluntarily. They were um, uh, people were compelled to go there, and that in some places, uh, as in I think with the Santa Fe school, that is just one that I'm familiar with. That practice lasted for quite some time. And in Canada, it, it, was, it was compulsory in a way that was particularly harsh, where government agents, including the mounted police, would appear in a village site uh, in the middle of the day, take all of the children out of the school, put them on a bus or uh, into a float plane, and take them away. And no, no discussion, no interaction with families. Families would wonder why the kids hadn't come home from school and go into the village to find them and, real, and be told that they had been taken. And they never saw them again. Well, these are tragic stories. And obviously, there'll be more these graves uncovered as the Kamloops 215 yeah, for sure. Graves of, that was never recorded before, so no. this is an ongoing revelation of a hideous history. Absolutely. I'm grateful for you joining us here today, Link. It's as sad as it is. It's an important story to be told. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, again, it's, I know, and uh, I'm a dual citizen of Canada and the U.S., uh, and I've worked in the U.S. This is WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for NPR News, and then Sean will be in with Midpoint. Don't go anywhere.